If you'll turn with me now, please, to this 10th chapter of Matthew, I want to share with you some of the teaching that's involved here, that we might discover some of the truth. The Lord Jesus is speaking about some things that are very common in the marketplace. He talks of, his, of the sale of sparrows. Are not two sparrows sold? Are not two sparrows sold? The amount they are sold for is such a pittance that he is telling us some great things if we'll look and discover. But how can they possibly be sold before first they're enslaved? Nothing can be, be, be sold until it's caught. Now there are various ways of catching. You can catch a fish with a net or a line. You can catch a bird by a trap or a snare or, or a net. You can catch butterflies with nets or in your hands. You can catch wild animals. You can catch people by laying traps for them. Nothing worse, I think, than somebody having a, having a domestic help come into the house and to prove. I've heard so many people say this sort of thing. I had to prove her honesty, so I left money in different places. And as soon as the domestic helpers left, all the money is checked in the various places. Uh, what a way to live in such dishonesty. The dishonesty is in the person leaving the money as well as in the supposed dishonesty of the person that will steal it. We lay snares, we lay traps. And to do so is a great shame. shouldn't be mentioned amongst Christians. There should be absolutely no need for us to do such things. Not an imagined need nor a real need. Now Jesus is saying, are not two sparrows sold? And I want, to, I want us to come now with our minds and our hearts for a moment or two and examine this. Are they not sold? How did they get sold? They had to be caught. They had to be caught. If you go through the scriptures, you'll discover people that have been caught. And Jesus is talking about a greater truth than the simple truth of, of his illustration. For instance, he says, I want you to be concerned about something. And that is, I want you to be concerned about how infinite, how tiny, how enormously wonderful God's concern is for you. He is concerned about that sparrow. If he's concerned about that sparrow who got caught, who was put in a cage, and who was sold either as a pet or as a meal. If God was concerned about that little sparrow, one of the more insignificant birds, because of their abundance and because of their lack of comparable beauty, I suppose sparrow lovers are going to say they're the most beautiful birds in all the world. I'm not a sparrow lover, but I like sparrows. I'm not a lover of any particular bird, but I have to admit that when I see a cardinal, I, I think that red has to be the reddest red in all the world. When I see a bluebird, it has to be the most fantastic colour I've ever seen. When I look at the canaries and all their plumage, and when I see the larger birds and all their marvellous muscular beauty and their tremendous ability to fly and to, to hunt and so on, when I see all of that, I have followed a snow owl for about two or three miles in the forest at one, on one occasion 
one of the most amazing things I ever did. When I see all that beauty and all that marvellousness, and I think of a sparrow, he doesn't really come too high on the list of beauty or in magnificence of flying. There isn't anything that really recommends him to me. And I think this is in the thinking of Jesus where he says, look, the sparrow is very common because he is so common and not overly beautiful, not overly massive, not overly anything. Even his singing isn't overly gorgeous. When you look at the sparrow, it is sort of a, the, the bird that lives in the cities and you know him from city to city by the way he coughs. You, you have to look at this bird. And Jesus said, this insignificant bird is sold. And the inference is, as you go back and put into the context of the rest of the scripture that Jesus is talking about, so are you insignificant. You're being sent out, he's saying to his disciples, and I want you to go, and I want you to tell people the truth, and I want you to be able to do the right thing at the right time, but understand you too are insignificant. You are not the most gorgeous man or woman. You, are not the, you don't have the most beautiful singing voice. You don't have the most marvelous appearance. You don't have the overpowering presence. I want you to know that you're just a disciple of mine. And as my disciple, I want you to understand God is more concerned about you than he is concerned about that sparrow, and yet he is enormously concerned about that sparrow. What's this thing about hair? You know, you've heard preachers make jokes about this hair business. God doesn't have to do so much counting anymore because I'm going bald and all that sort of nonsense. And yet what Jesus is saying is that each hair is not so much numbered as in 1 to 2013. What he is saying is each hair is labelled that it belongs and it belongs to you and God knows when that labelled hair falls to the ground. That's what he's saying. And God's concerned about your loss of that hair. I'm glad to hear that. And some of us have made him very concerned. Now then, it's important to see this because who would trade a sparrow? Who would trade? A, who would capture a beautiful bird of any size and put it in a cage and then trade it? Well, first of all, let's liken the sparrow to us and let's liken the cage to the various cages that we've been crammed into. In counselling, I'm amazed how many people say something like this to me. They come and they say, Pastor, if only you realised I am one of those people that were molested when I was a child. And more and more that this sort of thing is being discussed more openly in public, more and more people are saying this to pastors and to counsellors and so on. And it's a frightening thing. But what has happened is that as a child, when a child is molested, and by the way, if you're a molester, you were the person that put the cage around the child. And, and that child has a cage jammed round it. But the child grows into a man, into a woman, and that cage is very small, and so we have all these psychological hang-ups because the child grows, but the cage stays. It was only built for a small bird, a sparrow. Maybe you're one of these people that, you know, you started off by being... You, you were never really very much. You were just in an ordinary, very ordinary home and maybe you 
didn't have too much to eat and too much to wear and so you determined that by some dint or stint of your determination you would become a person that people would reckon with and so you become that person the problem is that very likely the motivating force behind your industry is a cage it was the cage of inferiority if you suffer from an inferiority complex the the object is psychologically that very likely you will exhibit a great superiority I am really something and there may be one area in which you glow or in which you, you show quite a lot of potential and in that area you let everybody know exactly who you are because you're the very best in that area. You have to back off. You're, you're struggling inside a cage and you know it. You know it better than anybody else even though people may tell you about it. You know because you're, you're jammed into a cage. If you grew up with parents that said you can do better you're always seeking to please a parent, always seeking to achieve. You may be an overachiever, and your cage is, is that overachieving thing. And so one can go on and on and on. Maybe you're a liar. You've had great difficulty in not lying. I was reading a, a very interesting article um, a, a few days ago by a very well-known and much-loved man in the ministry. And he said, there isn't a day goes by without the, every saint tells a lie. And I read that and I, I didn't like reading it, so I turned the page quickly and read on. But somehow I kept on having to go back and put it into its context, what he was saying. And what he was saying was this, we lie to ourselves and we lie to one another and so one way or another we end up each day lying. Now maybe you can accept that, maybe you can't. But you have to accept this, that all men are liars because that's biblical and that's the statement of the word of God and we have to understand that that may be in some people an even worse cage than with others and that lying capacity is a cage now some of you wives and some of you husbands push your spouse to match the cage to match the mold that you think they should be in and that's a very dangerous thing because you've done your own caging in your own time, but that's another story. I want to get on with this. And I want to share it with you this way. That we are all, if we're not very careful, in a cage. The only way out of the cage is to understand who it is that caught us and stuck us in the cage. We have to understand how it was that we got in that cage so that we could be taken to the market and exchanged for some trivia of money. There is only one slave trader that is mentioned in the Bible as being the unique slave trader of souls and that's Satan. That's Satan. And he's the one that catches us. He catches us with our sin that we excuse so that we can accept sinful practice and we can go on with our sinful practice and somehow we can excuse ourselves to the point that we can have a false salvation be very careful about that Satan trades with our souls and he will sell us for nothing we may accept all sorts of things into our lives and as we accept more sin so we discover ourselves in a great quagmire for instance the person that is a sinner is the unsaved person and when he repents he is cleansed of his sin it is the Christian that does evil it is the Christian that is involved in evil after that 
It is the Christian who is the evil person, not the person that has never received Christ. He is obviously evil. He belongs to Satan and his home is hell. So we, we can blot him out with the one expression, there is a sinner unsaved. But a person that is saved and has become a sinner saved by grace, then he finds himself in this cage and he finds himself being sold and peddled and and gradually pulled apart by Satan, he is developing evil in his own life that will infect the life of others, his family, and so on. We have to deal with that. How do we deal with it? Who has God put in this world to deal with this matter of enslavement? Well, believe it or not, God has given that, that chore, that job, to ministers. Not necessarily this minister, but to ministers. And I believe to the ministry of the gospel. I don't believe it's given to everyone. I believe that it is given to the ministers who, like Daniel, in Daniel 12, 13, said, Lord, I have done the work that thou gavest me to do. I have wrestled, I have traded for souls. The minister trades for souls. His work is to wrestle with Satan. His job is uniquely given. For instance, if you go into the Word of God, you will discover that there are two things that the minister has to deal with. He has to deal with truth and he has to deal with souls. That's all he has to do. The ministry, as we see it today, becomes all kinds of other things, but the ministry, as far as the Bible is concerned, is to deal in truth and to deal in souls. Two things. There are two things to deal with. And as the minister goes about his business, as, as did Daniel, you'll discover those two things are done. Now, this isn't for angels. Some people like to think that angels would get involved in this type of thing. It has nothing to do with angels at all. In fact, God hasn't given this ministry to angels. He has only given it to men. He has given it to men that are called the ministers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, you discover in verse 20 these words. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did, be did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. This is not the work of an angel. This is definitely the work of the minister. It is to wrestle for the soul. Be reconciled to God. You're stuck in a cage, you see yourself caught in, in, the own, in, in the ambiguity of your own life. You find yourself caught in the background of your life because, as the psychologist would tell you, of what your father was, what your father did, what your mother said, or how your mother acted. These impressions have gained upon you and you're sort of straight-jacketed and you're imprisoned. I want to tell you, there is fantastic relief in this scripture. But the mechanics are these that the preacher, the minister of the gospel, is the man that God has put upon this earth that he may wrestle your freedom, wrestle with you in, as an ambassador of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a specific ambassadorship. I don't believe it's for every person in the congregation, but it is certainly for the ministers of the gospel. Now, whatever your specific cage is, 
I want you to hear this. That Paul, speaking in Romans 11:13, says about the office that he has. He says, whoever the personage is, these aren't his exact words, this is the implication, whoever the personage is, the office is sacred. The ministry of the gospel is a sacred office. And he brings into that these words. He says, I magnify my office. I become the magnifying glass, the lens that throws on the screen of society, throws on the screen of the, of the congregation the beauty of the Lord Jesus. I become the lens. The lens that opens up, that closes down. I become the magnifying agent, either in the preaching or in the living, preferably in the living and in the preaching. Remember, Paul was never a popular man. Now, the minister's work is with God. It isn't with men and women. It is with God. We miss this. We misunderstand the ministry very often. I take you to the Scripture. Let you read it for yourself. Don't blame me for something that the Scripture says. But if you come into 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 19, you will discover that we are laborers together. Who with? God. We are laborers together. Who with? God. And what is it that we are doing? We are wrestling souls. We are teaching truth. Now the whole of this world is going in its own bent for truth. It is searching for truth. People are picking up all sorts of nasty and silly things. They're chasing after all sorts of new itching ear things. People like to think that if they, if they eat certain foods, they become more holy. If they drink certain certain beverages, they obviously are better Christians. People somehow think that if they live on herbs and spices and they wear some rough clothing, then they're going to be like John Baptist. Praise the Lord for being like John Baptist. Better to be like the Lord Jesus, who was criticized for eating and drinking in the presence of sinners. Now that isn't, that isn't a license to go out and say, well, I can get drunk. It isn't a license to say that I can become a glutton. It isn't a license to say that I have to go into the, in, into the public um, taverns, you call them in this country, into the public houses, the taverns, and drink and, and be a debauching person. Quite to the contrary. By the life that you now live, walking with Jesus out of that straitjacket that you've been jammed into all your life, out of that cage that you've been caught into for so long because Satan sold you there, he caught you with sin, he stuck you in the cage, and you're caught. Now, as we shall see in a moment, when the door is opened and Jesus walks before you, and now, as you, the door is opened and you're free, and now, as you live in that freedom, not license, but liberty, you will discover that the work of the ministry is to wrestle for your soul. To get that cage opened, to take that straight jacket out, to dispel those things that would keep you from developing into the person that God wants you to develop into. Now then, we're laborers together, not you and I necessarily, but the minister of the gospel and the Lord Jesus, God the Father, they are laborers together and very involved in the things of God. Let me share with you from the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse 58. The apostle says this, Therefore, now these things that I have just mentioned are the ministry, and he has mentioned the resurrection from the dead. This whole chapter is taken up 
of the ministry of the gospel of the resurrection of the dead. It's terribly important. That is the, the crisis point of the Christian doctrine. It's so different to all this other nonsense that goes on in the world, all these new isms and schisms that we have in the world. This is a powerful truth. He says, if you can understand that you're resurrected with Jesus Christ, and we're laborers together to share this gospel, look at verse 48, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now someone says, well now the test has to be that the pastor, the minister, has to be successful. What's success? The most successful man I ever met in the ministry never had a congregation bigger than about 30 people. I was thrilled to bits when a few weeks ago I met him again and I said, are you still at that place? And he said, absolutely. That's the place God wants for me. But he's praying. But the man's life speaks volumes more than all the show and the thrust and the bubble of many, many, many other people. Well now, what is it that keeps us? What is this cage? What is this straitjacket? What is this mould? What is this thing that has caught us all our lives? Quite frankly, I don't believe that I can put a mould on you. I don't think you can put one on me, although you may try. I don't think you can put me in a cage any more than I can put you in a cage, but I know this, that Satan has put us all in a cage at one time or another, and he will sell us. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if we're eaten or if we're kept as a pet. He doesn't care if we die or we live. I often used to think of the little birds that were taken down into the coal mines. And if there was a toxic gas, the bird died first. I used to, as a child, worry about those little birds. It used to worry me a great deal that they would take birds and put them in a cage and hang them at certain points in the coal mines and when the, these gases, whatever it was, that escaped from the underground would kill the birds, the miners would see the bird dead and run out. That's a great shame. It always bothered me. But here's what makes your cage. Here's what makes your straitjacket. Here's what makes your, your, your mold. One word. Fear. Fear. Jesus addresses fear. What are you frightened of? Ah, not me. Oh, yes, you are. What are you really frightened of? What, why the superior air? I'm really something, you know. Why? Why the officious air? Why? Because underneath there is this quagmire in the heart of worrying that somebody's going to put me down. I'm not going to be recognized as the right person or I won't be given my right station. That's not living by faith. That's living by superiority. Why criticize? Well, we criticize because we have a fear. One of the best methods to keep people away from you is to criticize them. Because they don't want to keep coming back to be criticized. And so they keep away. And then you can criticize them more because they keep away. And so it goes on, adding for nothing. Let's look at the scripture. And let's see some of the things that Jesus is saying. He is saying, mingled in with this sparrow and this hair thing, he is saying the real reason you have these problems and you don't understand that God's great concern is in the infinitesimal detail of your life is because you're frightened. 
and your fear overcomes you. Your fear won't let you speak honestly. Your fear won't let you be the person God made you to be. So you pretend. And Jesus speaks to his disciples. He says that fears make the heart faint. He says that fears debilitate. They render us useless. Fears become sin. So he says, fear not. Fear not. Now, lots of Christians are walking around saying, isn't the love of Jesus simply wonderful? Oh, and I'm so filled with the love of Jesus. And they sound like a lot of airy-fairy little creatures. Oh, it's so wonderful. I'm, I'm frothed up with the love of Jesus. Well, good. But why are you so frightened? Why so many fears? Why bury fears in the artificial stimuli when the real thing is the power and the presence of the Holy Ghost? Why do we turn to other things so that we can bolster ourselves up so that we can become and appear to be something that we know spiritually we're not? The fear is nagging at the gut. The fear is disturbing the mind. The fear is destroying the life. Fear is overtaking the daily routine. Fear has got us on the run. And that becomes the cage. That becomes the straitjacket. And that becomes the mold. You see, if I have received the love of Jesus, perfect love, which is the love of Jesus, perfect love, which is God's love exhibited towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the love of God that was exhibited to us as people who couldn't save ourselves, God showing his love toward us in the, while we were people of far off, God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that we, believing in him, should be redeemed. Now that's a basic fact. How come we're still in a cage? How come we're still caught in a fear? How come we're still in this awful straitjacket mold thing? Well, the truth, unfortunately, is this. That we don't really understand the love of God. Perfect love casts out fear. The love of God, then, must cast out the fear that would threaten to overthrow me. And the answer to the problem that has caught us and kept us is this, that we understand the love of God. I would like to spend about three hours on this one subject. I have just a few minutes to finish. But fears become a sin. Jesus had to say to his disciples, don't fear, fear not. Don't be frightened. How do you take away fear? I'm terrified when going down a hill at high speed I hit my brakes and there are no brakes fear overcomes me I'm terrified when the, 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 the ground underneath me rolls with an earthquake and the chandeliers swing across the room and the, and the windows bulge there's a fear that grabs me there is a secret nagging fear that my children won't go on with the Lord. There is a nagging fear that my family will fall apart. There is a nagging fear and there are fears all around. We are frightened sometimes that people won't accept us. We're frightened that we won't be well dressed. We're frightened that we'll be overdressed. We're frightened that we won't wear the right glasses, that we won't comb our hair the right way. We're frightened to offend and we're frightened if we do offend. 
Where's our fear coming from? Not the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus is perfect and it casts out fear. And because it casts out fear, we are born again. And because God is love, and this perfect love casts out the fear, we are free, we are liberated. We have a freedom that no one can take away. We're not in the straitjacket of our tradition. But then secondly, the soul needs, needs relief. It needs this freedom. Then we have to learn a very simple lesson. We have to transfer our fear to God. Jesus says, now listen to me. He said, I want you to understand this very simple thing. Don't fear man who can surely kill your body. He can chop off your head. He can torture you. And he can leave you in the dungeon imprisoned for days, for weeks, for months. He can throw the key away. Don't fear him. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who, after that's happened to you, can cast your soul into hell. Gehenna if you must. Hades if you want. Hell. Fear him. So we have to learn to transfer our fear. How can we transfer it to God? When we turn it into God, when we transfer it to God, our fear becomes reverence. Now the two words are different. You see, Jesus starts off with that traumatic fear that when the earth quakes and, and the terrors come upon us, you, do you remember, you younger people, do you remember waking up in the middle of the night screaming the place down? Because you were frightened. I used to have this recurring, I'm sure there's somebody out here that's going to say, oh, pastor, I can answer, I can tell you exactly what your dream was. Please don't bother. You waste your time and mine, but I used to dream this dream. I used to dream that there, were, there was a, a piano keyboard and snakes were going up and down the piano keyboard. Now, isn't that ridiculous? But it would happen night after night after night after night, and it must have happened for about five or six years. And I was terrified of snakes. And to this day, I see a snake and I do three or four paces backwards away from it. And I used to wake up as a youngster filled with a fear and a, a great shaking fear. Do you remember things like that? I think you might. Now Jesus says, I want to take you from that fear, which is the world's fear. It's a fear that is purely worldly. It belongs to this world. It belongs to the natural. It belongs to the supernatural that doesn't belong to God. That sort of fear that is not of God. And I want to show you how to transfer it. I want to show you how to turn it around. And he uses this word, translated in the authorized version and in most other versions, as fear. But the real word is reverence. He says, when, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear or reverence God. I'll tell you who to fear. I'll tell you who to reverence God. You want to get rid of this straitjacket? You want to get, break out of this mold? You want to get rid of this cage? You want the freedom that God is giving? Then my dear friend, it's right here in the precious word of God. Transfer what you're so frightened of, whether it's your youth, whether it's your past, whether it's some recent sinfulness, get rid of that fear by confessing it to Jesus, by receiving his forgiveness, by knowing the cleansing of the, of the blood of Christ, by knowing the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, and know now to reverence God. And you're free. You're free. 
See, remembering that we sometimes are very critical of other denominations that use their prayers from prayer books. I sometimes wish that we would take a prayer book and use it because we'd be far more intelligent in our praying than we are sometimes in our clichéistic prayers. But I would to God that we would repeat and understand our Father who art in heaven, my dearest Daddy who is living in the heavens, my dearest Papa. I would to God that we would understand the context and, in, and understand the impact of that opening expression that Jesus gave to his disciples. And fear would start to vanish. Jesus said, you believe in my Father, believe in me also. We need to learn to transfer this fear. Be aware of his overall love and his overall peace. Understanding his priorities to gain a life. And then the only way to gain our lives is to lose it. We protect our lives so much. We protect our reputation so much. We protect ourselves so much. We have somehow to build a fence around us and we have to prove ourselves that we're right and we're this and we're that in order that we may stand firm. I was a little broken-hearted this morning. At about seven o'clock a friend phoned me and he said, I'm resigning from my church. I said, well, but Why? Well, it's the same old thing that we've been hearing all over the denomination. Little pockets of people doing their thing. I said to him, well, what, what happened? Well, he said, I, I got fed up with all the arguments. I got sick of all the nonsense. God calls me to minister his holy word and I've always been faithful and true and he said, the thing is just ridiculous. So I just told the people, you can do whatever you like with my reputation. You can do it. Now, I didn't say that. I'm telling you what he said. I haven't got that far yet. And he said, they did. They did. What tragedy. And yet, what glory. He said, you know what? I'm free. His wife was on the other phone and she said, for the first time in so many years, it's a relief to be away from Christians. Something's not right. I said, how can it be so? We have to understand that we don't have to be right. We have to be faithful. Now, I know that's leaving some people to interpret that in a silly way. But if we're to lead, we're to serve. This is God's way. It's a backward world. It's an upside-down cake. If you would get out of your cage, it's all back to front. If you want your life, then lose it. If you want to be saved, if you want to be right with God, then be crucified to live. Die. It's an upside-down world. God is back to front to man's thinking. Man says this is the way to do it because they've done it in that place, this place, the other place, because this is the worldly way and we've sanctified it by praying over it. God says don't do that. Do what Daniel did. Do what Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego did. 
Do what the disciples did. Do what Paul did. Be unpopular, but do what God wants done. What is it that God wants done? He wants us to be without fear. Without fear. Jesus is saying, look, God is so concerned when the sweat on your brow, you wipe it off, and when a hair goes with it, and it falls to the ground, God's real concerned about that hair that you just lost. God's so concerned that when that sparrow, when the hail hits the sparrow and knocks it unconscious so that it tumbles into a puddle and drowns, God knows about that sparrow. God understands that sparrow that flies and manages somehow to, to land on a very hot piece of concrete on a hot day and burns its feet and starts trying to get off the ground but leaves pieces of his feet and he flaps his wings and gets off the ground but his feet hurt him so much he can't grasp a twig and so he flies until he's exhausted and falls to the ground and the car goes over him. God knows about that. Now somebody is, saying, is going to say I'm crude. No, I'm not. That's the illustration of what goes on. God is concerned. He's concerned about you and me. And his concern is so great that he gives us this. Jesus says, understand by implication, he says, understand your fear and understand it's dealt with once and for all. It's dealt with completely. Your fear is absolutely dealt with. He broke the power of cancelled sin. My sin was cancelled at Calvary. All of my sin was cancelled at Calvary. All of my evil was cancelled at Calvary. But now I have to understand something. He broke the power of cancelled sin. And I have to realize that sin has been cancelled. Jesus cancelled my sin. And the power I have today is because I know my sin was cancelled by the death and resurrection of Jesus Therefore, my cancelled sin, something that is useless and worthless, can easily be put to one side. What fear do you carry that won't let you go, that holds you in its cage? What fear holds you in its mould? What fear holds you in that straitjacket? Young woman, said this not very many months back she doesn't come to this church she said I am the immoral person I am because I was molested as a child and I said no you're a liar that's a fear you didn't have to become immoral you could trust Jesus. And that immorality is forgiven. Even that molesting that caused your mind to think in certain directions can be changed. It's a cop-out to say, what happened to me made me what I am. Sure, it had an imprint. Sure, it left its imprint. Sure, it made some impact upon my life. But I'll tell you this. When Jesus Christ comes into our lives, he removes the fear, he removes the past, 
removes the sin and he gives us joy and he gives us peace and he gives us rejoicing and he gives us new life and in the midst of being misunderstood in the midst of foolishness in the midst of sinfulness in the midst of a world that is falling apart Jesus is supreme in those whose sin is forgiven whose fear is cancelled now we have to do some reckoning and then I'll quit will you just for a moment visualize your greatest fear And will you recognize it as sin? And will you quietly, in your heart now, say, Lord Jesus, take this from me. And leave this place today without your cage. Who rattled it? The preacher. You leave it. Let the Spirit of God Take hold of your fear. God's so concerned about a little sparrow. If he's concerned about the little hairs on your head, Jesus said he's sure concerned about you. Pray with me, will you? Almighty Lord and Father, we pray that there may be a truthful honesty here. That instead of burying ourselves in what we've heard in the past and what we've thought in the past, that we may deal with what we are and where we are at this minute. We earnestly ask of thee that thou would, Lord, pour thy Holy Spirit upon this congregation, that ere we leave this place, we may leave it with the peace and the joy and the presence of Christ. We pray these things for thy name's sake. Amen.